welcome to this month's <laughs> Fieldworks talk. Um, I'm going to go straight into an introduction here because this week we have two speakers um, who work together. They are um, Kate Hennessy and Trudy Lynn Smith. Um, Kate and Trudy are anthropologists and practicing artists, and so really perfect for the type of um, uh, conversation that we've been hosting here over the months so far. Um, they've been working together as curators and collaborators for more than a decade. Um, and I think really important to note for those of us that are anthropologists, um, they've been working as part of Ethnographic Terminalia, which is an international curatorial collective, um, and they exhibit and create works at this intersection of art and anthropology. Um, Kate Hennessy um, works at Simon Fraser University's School of Interactive Arts and Technology, and she leads a really fantastic program called Making Culture Lab. Um, it's an interdisciplinary research and production studio. Um, Trudy Smith um, works in the School of Environmental Studies. I don't know if anyone can see my bibs right now. Apologies if you can, uh, in the middle of the bio. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Trudy uh, recently worked in, as the artist in residence with Kate in the Making Culture Lab. And together they explore cultural practices of media, museums and archives in the context of technoscience. So, their talk today is going to be about particular projects, but um, I'm really fascinated by this um, this notion of entropy or fugit fugit I can't even say it fugit fugitivity um, in relation to collections and archival materials, um, and so really I think as they've highlighted in the text um, and in their work, collaboration is a really central aspect, whether that's humans or non-human entities. Um, and I think that's uh, a really solid um, introduction to the themes that we're going to be addressing today. And I'd like to pass over um, to Kate and Trudy. If there are issues with the um, with the connection, we can just try and you know improvise and we'll pick things up as we go. So I will now mute myself. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you, Jen, for that very nice introduction. And did you see my internet completely died as, as you were giving that? So. I hope that it that it uh, doesn't do that again. Um, I'm gonna. Oh, can I share my screen, please? Would you enable my screen sharing? I'll share some slides, and I will do my best also um, with Trudy to describe the images as we go along. But also, it's wonderful that uh, you've created this beautiful. Hold on, where are we? Here we go. This this uh, beautiful site that we can use. Um, to refer people to to see the images as we as we speak. Can you see my slides okay? All right. So um, yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Trudy and I were very excited to have the opportunity to submit a proposal for the exhibition and uh, also to have the chance to be a part of this, this uh, project. So we're going to talk today about uh, the work that we shared called Fugitive Structures, the Bauhaus Building in DeSalle. Um, we're in British Columbia right now, so we also begin our talk by acknowledging the territory that we are broadcasting from. Um, so I am uh, work at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, where we're on the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And um, Trudy is in Victoria. Yeah, I'm at the University of Victoria um, 
and we acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen-speaking pe pe peoples uh, on whose traditional territory the university stands, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanic peoples whose uh, historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Thank you, Trudy. Um, so uh, we'll start off by saying that um, the origin of this work um, is through a contribution that we made along with architect uh, Oliver Neumann to a book called Bauhaus Futures that was edited by Laura Forlano, Molly Wright Steenson, and Mike Anony. Um, Trudy and I had been working on a couple of projects related to our fugitives and, and, uh, and archival materiality uh, sort of artworks and writing. And we were invited to propose a work that would help to speak to this project, um, which is a sort of science technology studies oriented uh, book that looks at the, the uh, sort of legacy and future of the Bauhaus in its hundredth uh, year. So we were challenged to think of a way to apply the theory that we were working with and the method to this writing. And um, I think for today, some of the ways that uh, maybe we can talk about the conversation, especially looking forward to a physical exhibition, I hope, uh, coming up, um, are some of the ways that we might think about moving from, um, you know, in this, this direction, which actually was not a, a typical direction for us in terms of making artwork and exhibiting it, documenting it, writing it. Um, in this case, we, we started with a text. Um, for which the making of these images was integral and really the method that was used to theorize for the writing, um, which then became a series of images uh, which were first exhibited online and then perhaps will, will be transformed into a physical exhibition. Um, usually we, we go the other way. We make the artwork, we install it in physical space, we document it, and then we write about it. So um, I think that's interesting for us in terms of uh, thinking about the work that we all do together. Um, but overall, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about our risograph printmaking as a kind of generative method for theorizing an archival materiality, which Trudy and I are writing about. Um, and um, yeah, maybe we'll come back to this at the end when we think about some proposals for how to exhibit it in physical space. And I should also say, just uh, jump in if you have any questions or you want to ask anything along the way, feel free to interrupt us. Um, so just as a bit of background, around the time that we started this project for the Bauhaus Futures book, um, Trudy and I had just um, done a small exhibition at the Royal British Columbia Museum in Victoria called Fugitives in the Archive. And this was an exhibition that, that um, was based on fieldwork that we did in the archives, the, the British Columbia Provincial Archives, um, where as a starting point, we were interested in looking for objects or phenomena in the archive that were unexpected, sort of misbehaving, um, things that archivists had to work against in order to do their job of preservation. So we went to uh, Anne Tenkata, who was a archivist who was uh, just very close to retiring and asked her if she had any stories about things that were behaving in this way. And of course, she had a lot of stories and ideas about the problem of deterioration and unexpected uh, activity in the archives. So she took us through the archives and showed us some of these things. And as she did it, she described these as fugitives. So a fugitive 
you know, um, like tape playback machine, fugitive objects, many different things that in different ways could not be preserved. And we started to understand fugitives in this way as, um, you know, objects that for many different reasons, maybe material, maybe um, in terms of the value that's placed on them, um, in terms of the way they fit or don't fit in terms of the categories that have been created within the archive. Um, these are all the ways that things either become archival and are allowed to be kept in the archive or um, are deemed anarchival and maybe will be marked for destruction or the trash heap. So we we worked with her and walked through all and looked at different examples of things in archives that had particular stories attached to them. So some of those were like a box of records that had been written by an Indian agent um, about trap line and, and uh, treaty rights in British Columbia that had been almost thrown away before they were rescued by somebody. We looked at uh, film, color film that had um, experienced uh, color degradation so that all that was left was, you know, magenta. And we worked with some of those films to create kind of experimental approaches that highlighted the problem of color loss. Um, and that's something we wrote about not long ago for the Journal Visual Anthropology Review, which Jen will know well. Um, Trudy, do you want to say anything about about that project before I plow forward? You can keep going forward, but I can speak if you'd like. This do you want to say anything about color? Because I, I think um, yes. this was also a real starting point for us working with the risograph images. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'll do it. Um, yeah, so we became really interested in the problem of color loss in archives. This is a massive problem. My background's in um, photography and uh, anyone who does photography and film knows that color film is... Um, um, famously very unstable. And of course, archives are filled with um, color images that are um, turning into, uh, they're either losing color, like in this image, you can see that uh, we've got magenta left, but most of the cyan and yellow has uh, fled the, the, the um, emulsion base. Um, and so you have uh, archives filled with um, magenta film as opposed to full color film. And so we thought that was really interesting that certain colors sort of flee, they're fugitive, they're leaving um, through, uh, you know, the air. Um, some other uh, types of emulsion, some of the um, black and white early uh, emulsion types uh, are, you know, turning into goo. So archivists come across boxes where glass plates are stuck together as one big gooey mass. So we were interested in the movement from an image in an archive to sort of the object of a stack of glass plates that are stuck together or the movement from a full color film to its description being, uh, instead of uh, the film description, it being described as uh, having um, vinegar syndrome or some sort of like loss. And so how does a, how does a, something in the archive move from being um, the thing it was meant to be into being something about that loss? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And, and something, thanks Trudy. And um, 
you know, something that we write about in this article is how within anthropology, we, you know, look back uh, to a salvage paradigm where color film and ethnographic film documentation was seen as a way to preserve. Um, um, and ultimately, the, the magenta color is a signal of how that project has failed. So there's a kind of um, way into looking at um, a kind of failure of a modern project. Um, so we've been interested in that. And certainly we were thinking about that when we started this work. So in conversation with Oliver, uh, talking about architecture, talking about the Bauhaus and uh, full, full disclosure, we are not Bauhaus scholars. And so we're very actually excited to be able to talk about it more with people who certainly know a lot more about its history and uh, ways of thinking about it than we do. But um, for us, it was very interesting to sort of look at uh, some writing about the Bauhaus and photography in particular, and for us to think about um, you know, the, 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 that moment in time where color film technologies were actually being developed and there was a lot of excitement around the ability to record um, actualities or, you know, moments in time in full color um, and a belief in that four color separation as a kind of uh, crystallization of, of reality for the future. Um, so we were also very interested to read um, um, work about uh, Lucia Maholi as uh, the sort of photographer of the Bauhaus and her particular legacy and reading about uh, her experience um, and the fate of her archive also gave us other ways of thinking through fugitivity as a sort of approach and anarchival materiality in particular in relation to the, the Bauhaus archive. Um, so the risograph, um, Trudy, would you like just to say a little about, about this unpredictable machine? Sure. Yeah, um, you may be familiar with the Rizzo graph. It was a popular um, photocopier that was used by churches and schools and such in the uh, 1980s, I think. Um, and it was, uh, Rizzo actually means ideal in Japanese, allegedly. And um, it's sort of anything but ideal. It uh, often sticks and um, papers don't go through super well. Um, and what was probably the frustration of many, a school administrator became the delight of many artists and um, activists who were able to use the way that it didn't quite work out um, to their advantage. So oftentimes when you go to make an image on a risograph, the, yeah, they, it goes through three kind of the cyan, magenta, and yellow layer. You can see here in this image, it's showing um, an image of Lucia Moholy. And um, she's um, in both the kind of bluish cyan and the magenta because I'm going to feed them back through to go through the, the next stage. So you sort of feed it through multiple times. Because it sticks, you have to kind of re-feed it. But because it's because the the inks stick it means that the images don't line up and that was sort of the starting point for this part of the project of um, making these risographs which is that um, it's sort of impossible on this photocopier to ever make two images that are the same and so um, I borrowed this um, photocopier from a local um, art society and went in and, and made these images and and could not make two the same. And then they also show the sort of layers, the cyan, magenta, and yellow layers as you as you pull them through. 
Yes. And, um, you know, I'm just looking at our notes, what we, what we wrote about this. We, we wrote working with this machine, we co-created misaligned risograph images to unbind the building and archive from a narrative of stability and permanence. Um, and so, you know, we were using this and these images to suggest that the disallowed building, which was photographed by Lucia Maholi, um, but then, um, you know, envisioned by Walter Gropius as this manifesto of the Bauhaus idea and promoted largely without crediting Lucia Maholi as the photographer, um, that it exists as a kind of entropic fugitive archive that is as precarious as, as it is iconic. Um, so for us, you know, we're asking how does thinking about the DeSalle building through a critical feminist ethos of anarchival materiality suggest an alternative reading of the Bauhaus uh, histories and futures. Um, and essentially the these images are um, a represent, representative of our collaborative practice of image making in this space between art and anthropology, and also used as a method for writing about the Bauhaus in the centennial year. So ultimately, you know, there are five images that we created. Um, the first is this uh, sort of remediated famous self-portrait of Lucia Maholi. Um, and, you know, in the chapter and a little bit in the online exhibition, we talk about um, you know, her, her story, which, you know, in which she was forced to flee Berlin with the rise of the National Socialist Party. And, and she had to abandon the bulk of her glass plate negatives and leave them behind in her apartment. Um, these, you know, were heavy. She couldn't carry them. Um, Walter Gropius then retrieved them from her apartment and uh, was exiled to the United States. Um, and so, you know, in their fugitive state without her knowledge or permission as a rightful copyright holder, um, these, these photographs that she created of the Bauhaus were transformed by Gropius um, really into uh, the Bauhaus legacy that we're all familiar with through her images. Um, so that's part of the story that we're working through with this image. Um, this is, you know, the famous image of the DeSalle building. Um, this is an image created by Lucia Moholy at a certain moment in time with all of the uh, conditions and sort of technological um, developments that allowed her to take this image at this time. And, and you know, we, we use this image to think about what uh, Karen Barad talks about the agential cut, this moment in time that represents really only this moment in time and the particular conditions that led to it being created. Um, um, and, and trying to think through this in relation to the entropic force of the world that we're calling anarchival materiality. Trudy, do you want to say anything about, about that image or the next? Maybe the next <clears throat> one. Yeah. yeah, how about this one? Um, this is the, the wartime image that we thought was interesting in contrast to the more iconic image. Yeah, we became interested in part how, because we're not Bauhaus scholars, we were looking at the archive online and what, um, what was the prominent story 
in photographic archives. And, um, and the previous image, of course, is this widely circulated image of what the, um, this very important architectural building was. But um, in reality, that building was only like that for an instant before um, the war and, and the change to the building. So that image of uh, Lucia Moholy's is widely circulated as the Bauhaus you know, this is the building, this is the ultimate piece as we understand it. Um, and, and, but in reality, this image here, which is a, uh, in the war, just after the war, um, shows the fact that the building actually was radically affected by the war. Of course, it's like in the world living. And so, um, and so this, this image is, uh, yeah, shows major differences in the building and how it was sort of destroyed. And, uh, during the, um, during the war. And so again, our risograph here is showing the separation, the sort of like these things are, are always on the move. And so there's these multiple layers here in this image that are like the cyan is quite stable. And then there's this magenta moving off the page. And so it's showing this, all of these um, photographic archives, but also the live, you know, the real place is always, always changing. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, and that sort of also, you know, that took us into reading, um, you know, uh, work that documented the heritage restoration of the building. Um, we were very interested in Monica Mark Graff's report on the building, where she um, highlighted some of the architectural elements and building materials that became archival in the moment of reconstruction and also thinking about how to preserve the Bauhaus architectural legacy. Um, so, you know, this is a brick that she documented that we became quite entranced with. Um, you know, this is, you know, the three color hollow uh, cinder block. And this was, um, you know, generated from the construction research archive at the Bauhaus de Salt Foundation. So it's a very ubiquitous sort of unremarkable piece of building material um, that in many ways became an archival uh, as rubble um, after the war. But then through the process of, you know, heritageization and the need to uh, conserve, it became valued again. And we would say, you know, sort of left its more fugitive state and became archival again through this process of documentation. Um, so, you know, this, this also reminds us in its kind of chipped imperfection that the, uh, from to our understanding, you know, the Bauhaus ideal of clean lines and free plan and replication um, and repetition, it, you know, it, it, it reminds us that this is an ideal that often in actual practice and in construction, something that Oliver helped us think about as well, um, is, is not, not possible or perhaps, perhaps real. Um, so, you know, this, this, Brick and also the greenhouse that we'll talk about next really shows us uh, the sort of mutable nature of the fugitive object, how it comes in and out of value and um, moves between being archival and anarchival. Um, and the final image is also um, from documentation by Monica McGrath. Um, and this is a greenhouse that was on the grounds of the DeSalle building. These uh, windows, it was discovered, were actually um, the original windows as a part of the glass curtain wall in the building that were damaged um, and post-war turned into a greenhouse, which we 
speculate was related to the desire for food security, um, thinking about surviving and growing and uh, feeding people. Um, and when uh, the heritage restoration was underway, people realized that these windows were the original windows so that the greenhouse was disassembled. The windows were repaired, um, archived, and I believe uh, reintegrated into the building again. So they also kind of show this mutable pathway from um, something being in the world, um, existing as it is becoming garbage, reused, repurposed, being fugitive um, with an undetermined uh, future, but then through, um, you know, changing uh, value of material and places becomes archival again. So those are the images that we share as a part of the exhibition. And um, certainly when we proposed the work, we were asked as, you know, curators will ask artists, what are your, what is the installation requirement for this work? And, um, you know, we, especially, you know, having worked with ethnographic terminalia all those years, along with uh, Fiona McDonald and Stephanie Takaragawa and Craig Campbell, um, we read through a lot of proposals for works and always appreciated variable options <laughs> from the large scale to the small scale. So Trudy and I um, thought through different ways that we could imagine the work being shown. And it's interesting for us to have a chance to think about with you um, what would be an effective way to show these images. So, you know, we could go, you know, we're, we're enjoying uh, showing some of our work on sort of like large face mounted, you know, vibrant, um, larger scale reproductions of the work. We're interested perhaps in like actual to scale images of the risograph paper, which is like standard eight and a half by 11 along with perhaps a little booklet that would represent this revised text or a series of sort of like postcard type images that could be taken away or a combination of all of the above. So that's essentially our, our work and we are uh, excited to chat with you about it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, thank you. Should too. I stop the share? Okay. Um, well, we we oh. might want to go back to some of the images or people may have questions. Okay. So maybe we okay. can um, see see what emerges. Um, okay. I'm going to negotiate my... I've just... There isn't anything put in the chat so far. Does anybody have any burning burning questions um, that they'd like to get in there quickly with? Or are you happy for Max or I to pick up something immediately? Feel free to to speak up or um, put something in the chat. Well, then, um, whilst people are developing their thoughts and questions, perhaps I I'm really um, I mean it's just so wonderful to hear you talk about this, Kate. Because obviously, goodness, like three years ago, I heard a, a presentation that you'd written together um, for this panel that we did. I'd forgotten all about it actually at the British Museum. I think you can be there, but Trudy was there. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then. Yeah. Um, and and then uh, of course the the visual anthropology review, which had me thinking so differently, and you really uh, made me think about what an anarchival um, given. And this is one of my questions, so I don't want to slide off too far into that archival and anarchival because we've we've thought through that a lot. Um, but just one comment that you made about 
um, and more than once about how things become archival again through documentation. Um, I suppose it's about the question of what it gets valued and what gets, you know, cared for. Maybe that's where the, the archival kind of value is coming. But um, so, there, the, so I do have questions around that and particularly around what's exciting and what I share about the aesthetics maybe of the fugitive, um, of what which evades um, or f flees <laughs> or goes into hiding. But um, but I want to start with a question that I've I'm just I will find so helpful for my own work and for many people here I think, which is this this way that you work together and the way you work together for this project in particular, which is really a way of thinking through making artwork I think or thinking through um, the things which might be by chance that might be an aesthetic decision which might um, come through the making of a particular image and I was just wondering from both of you, um, whether some of the possibilities of this theory, whether you're talking about, you know, um, Karen Barad's sort of, you know, quite uh, complex and fascinating philosophical ideas, or whether they're more perhaps even practical anthropological ones, it's actually when you start to work with um, the material, the images, the stuff to make something or are you just making anyway, that the, the, the possibilities of these ideas emerge. So basically, turning things around um, from perhaps what might be a more um, commonly held idea about how, you know, ideas starting first and the making happening afterwards, or whichever way around it is that people normatively understand that. So I'd love to know a bit more about whether that is the case here, whether, whether some of the ideas about fugitivity emerged because of the risograph, um, which does indeed mean I ideal <laughs> in Japanese. Yeah, okay. tell us a bit about that. <laughs> yeah. um, Trudy, do you want to start? Sure, I can say a few things. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I think that for us, um, we both work as artists and I think we really recognize that the, you learn so much through making things um, that, you know, just as many people who don't make art, you know, you're writing and other ideas come up as you're writing because you put down a word that, you know, just comes out and then it leads to thinking, oh, what does that word really mean? And then it leads to something else. And so similarly with art, I think both of us really experience, um, you know, you start to do something like you try to fold a piece of paper and it doesn't quite fold right. And so then you do something slightly differently from that and it leads to another thought and another action. So I think really simply on one hand and very complexly, I guess, at the same time, that's that's happening like that. And so in this project, we knew we wanted to think about this Bauhaus archive um, and these images we had found that were sparking all kinds of thoughts. We've been really interested in color because we've been working at the gallery, uh, the, at the Royal BC Museum and in the archives there. And uh, we, we've really been thinking about, um, yeah, how to talk about color in this, and, and this opportunity came up to work with this Rizzo graph machine, which really is so much about color and also about loss, um, really instability and all the things that we were seeing in the archive is like, you know, we were like, here's one thing we can be doing. Um, that's some initial thoughts. Kate, do you want to pick up from there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly um, something we've been talking about in some of our writing and for sure in our practice is um, 
you know, in Canada, what we're calling research creation, um, which I think essentially has been a way to help artists engage with the research landscape in universities. Um, so maybe it has a bit of a neoliberal problem attached to it, but at the same time, there is funding um, and a mean something we participate where the the starting point for knowledge creation and making is through producing work so that could be research through design it could be an artwork or installation or uh, exhibition um, so we recognize and I think increasingly our institutions support making as a starting point for um, you know compelling research valuable research but you know, in terms of fugitivity, really, that began, uh, we've talked about it before, I guess, you know, back in Chicago, I think 2013 was an ethnographic terminalia exhibition at the Arts Incubator in Washington Park. And we, um, Trudy was working on a really amazing project with um, Andrea Walsh and uh, Adam Olson, Joni Olson and Sylvia Olson, uh, who are incredible um Coast Salish knitters. Um, and uh, we could talk for a long time about this project, but I, I tagged along with Trudy to the Field Museum where she was doing some uh, archival research for the project. And we uh, were going through some of the um, collections and files from that had been collected in the 1890s for the World's Fair. And as we opened up one of the Manila folders, there was a incredible imprint from an oil pastel northwest coast drawing that had been collected and it was you know very ghostly and and unexpected and that really we just couldn't get over it <laughs> and so you know a couple of years later actually many years later five years later we're in victoria we're developing this project with the bc archives to go see what else we could find that's and then fugitivity emerged because of the way that the archivist talked about the objects that she was stewarded with uh, caring for. Um, and so certainly as we walked with her and looked at all the different examples, um, like a pile of wallets from, you know, um, people who had died and whose, you know, these wallets, you know, their papers had come to the archives and their wallets didn't really fit. So they end up in a pile at the end of the shelf or a bullet from a very famous uh, murder trial that involved, you know, settler colonialism and a, uh, uh, the murder of a settler by an indigenous person, um, that bullet casing just doesn't fit with the papers and it ends up on the outside. So it's integral to the story, um, but doesn't really fit within the uh, preservation um, protocols or the classifications. So, yeah, I would say making for us is a really important starting point and has been very pleasurable for us to work on together. Um, very exciting. We've got a few projects that we're working on now. And, and also, I just think very generative. It feels like a really good way to work for us, I think. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I absolutely could um, continue on this um, this angle, but um, I'm aware that we want to open up um, to people as best we can. And actually, Ray, um, Lucas, maybe we could... Um, what do people want to do? Max, do you have an opinion about um, keeping the screen share open or maybe allowing us to see more faces? What do you think? Yeah, seeing more faces would be nice. I was about to okay. ask people to just turn on. I the agree. Light. Let's do yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'll just have like. on my very close up face. Sorry. Yeah. 
<laughs> we love to see more people on camera. It's always very yeah, that'd be great. Um, great assembly here, and it's it's really nice to have people around. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> Thank you so, so um, Ray has a in the chat put a question. Ray, do you want to uh, vocalize it yeah. yourself? Absolutely. Um, first Thanks. of all. Thanks for the talk. Um, I need to follow up on all your other work and I need to, uh, I probably should have invited more ag, uh, Jen. Um, I was thinking that when we talked about the, the archival, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, there, there's a specific interest there as well. My, my wife's a, an archivist um, at the um, War Crimes Tribunals in The Hague. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of things there which are uh, similarly outside of the classification not not so much the classification scheme but outside of the norm of the paper archive you know and, and she's quite interested in how archives deal with objects um, but again it's not not for me to to talk too much to that I was actually wanting to pick up the the question you left us with at the end about um, the display of the, the objects, um, the, the how to exhibit. And to me, it feels, you know, I, I just, I came to this meeting from a, a talk that I was asked to give to some of our students and I ended up um, quoting Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, you know, which, well, you know, everyone's been around so many times, but I think the, the risograph itself gives us the, the, all the clues we need about how to exhibit it. You know, first of all, it's multiple. It's not singular. Although each one is unique, they are all of a type. And also, you know, as for the distribution of newsletters and things like that, and I'm quite interested in how, you know, there's this impulse always to put drawings and, and things on on surfaces on walls and distances when actually it's really useful to have things that are manageable and flat and in the hand there's a different experience looking at a drawing in the hand like this and it just felt to me like the idea should be to distribute them and to see where they end up to see what kind of lives they end up with and um, to see what the afterlife of that image can be once it is out in the world um, you know, it makes me think a little bit about the, the mania over these NFT digital artworks that seem to move so against the benefits of digital art by making them ownable and unique in really uh, peculiar and strange ways. And I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's a way of commodifying uh, something which by its nature should have been, uh, you know, very resistant uh, to that process, so I think you know. To me, it feels like the clues are there within the within the technology that that, that you're working with, and it's it's distribution and, and putting it out in the world and seeing where it ends up. I think would be quite fascinating to see what further life these things can have. Yeah, I I love that idea, and certainly um, that's something you know we've talked about this idea of making booklets or um, but print having them you know, all printed on a risograph would also be exciting because you would see the variation between each, you know, edition of the booklet. And um, I think that would be quite exciting, mm. exciting to see. Yeah, the, I think it, it was, um, it was exciting to have the opportunity to access the risograph machine for this project. And um, I think 
you're you're right that it's very uh, generative to take the clue that the that the machine gives you in terms of how people might understand it and take the ideas that we're trying to express away in a more um, hands-on mode. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. I think it gives also an idea of like, yeah, for me, it was also kind of a problem of saying maybe the print, like of making photograph will kind of interrupt the chain of making, the great chain of making that you set in motion. And I was thinking of for us curators, I don't know, if we don't think of Corona and all these things, we're thinking, oh, maybe we should hunt for a risograph machine in, in Lisbon and, and set it there, you know, and kind of get the rhizome because this technology was kind of everywhere. It was, it was everywhere. And it's a kind of portal that, that kind of, and also, is it the thing that's like this smell of the risograph also, this kind of, uh, you know, we are, most of people of this generation have a connection to it that is also very sensuous. And yeah, I was thinking that this, this is the place where the curate the curatorial work you you know, work really together with the artistic work like I'm imagine myself making phone calls like on, on the old phone and like where is the reason <laughs> you know and, yes and you know asking people okay wh where is it wh what are you doing with it and trying to you know do them because it's going to generate more things right more connections more interesting things just a thought wow. We would love that. Would that would be amazing if, if, we would love if you can find a risograph machine and just print, 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 print. Like, you know, I think you end up with piles of paper yeah. and some of them are not, you know, crumpled, like Trudy said, but there's a kind of um, ephemerality and, and uniqueness to each one that, you know, especially, you know, Ray talking about that in relation to um, NFTs and what this means in this moment which i don't think any of us understand is is quite interesting too it would be wonderful to do that if you can find a riso you just need somebody there to be the paper jam person <laughs> but otherwise but that's like part of the artist residency or whatever um that you have going on where somebody's yeah it would be exciting mm. It can be in Berlin as well, but I think Lisbon it's a it's a very old faculty of art, so there there must be something there, right? Under a big layer of dust, or not? Maybe it's actually something there they are using. Um, thank you very much. Um, so it's good to leave the floor open again for more questions. Um, oh yeah, Philippa has already an offer. She knows someone <laughs> with graph. That's excellent. Um, Natalia, you want to present this reference that you just uh, came up with, MIT Press, um, John Lackinger. Yeah. Uh, very interesting talk. So I had uh, like a lot of idea, but what is interesting maybe for you is to look at uh, the second wife of Mohol Noj <laughs> and her discussion with your Kjapesh, who from, uh, from Bauhaus went to MIT. And this letter is very interesting, uh, critique of Bauhaus. So maybe for you, it's interesting to read. And because I didn't know this of Lucy, I'm an architect, so I am like uh, <laughs> very, and then I got educated beginning of century. And it's for me interesting what I learned in the recent time, this in-betweens, this fugitive information changed completely because the first education was kind of uh, without any critique, substantial. No? <laughs> so this is interesting for me also to know this about uh, images of Lucia. So for you, I just posted this 
which is maybe not so much talking, but again, through the letter of a woman, some things are revealed. Maybe you'll look at it later. Yeah, that's just Thank more. you so much. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to read that. Thank you. We might want to resograph the letter. That could be a good <laughs> appendix. Yeah, but uh, I was thinking about these letters. Without these letters, not of the none of this would be known. You know that Lucia was not writing her letter and this. So maybe I thought that you should maybe <laughs> write some letters. Yeah, it would be it would be very exciting to um, you know be able to go to the Dassault archive you know, and look at some of the papers in the archives um, and some of the correspondence that is certainly there as well. Help tell that story, which exists in the archive. Um, unless there's another um, question, sorry, I, I feel like it's appropriate for me to ask this question at this particular moment, as my son is demanding me. Um, you explicitly a feminist approach to your collective collaborative things and it's an area that certainly because I work in Japan I've found increasingly important to articulate um, and use that word and I just would love to hear a bit more about how you both um, choose to to, to 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 name that and 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 how what that offers and maybe if there are any challenges as well that would be really interesting. <laughs> Trudy, do you want to start with that one? Um, where to start? Do you have an idea of where to start that, Kate? Um, well, um, I mean, I think I think some of it um, comes from the way that our work sits within a kind of new materialist paradigm, or or floats in and out of that space. Um, Certainly, we're very influenced by uh, some of the STS scholars and anthropologists who have taken a kind of feminist uh, approach to history of science and thinking about that in relation to anthropology. Um, so, you know, we're working with some of the, you know, we're not working with, but, you know, referencing and being inspired by some of the feminist scholars um, of our time, which we, we um, talk about in, the, in our writing. Um, but I think also we have been interested in approaching the work from a position of um, care, um, thinking about curation, not so much about uh, preservation, which tends to be the one of the goals of that, that curators are uh, challenged with in their work, but also thinking about um, different ways of, of considering um, what it means to care for something, which includes uh, letting it go um, and not working so hard to keep things um, persistent. Uh, so that would be one way. And then I think also for Trudy and I working within, you know, the academy and trying to experiment with methods, thinking about some of the ways, um, you know, oppressive structures play into our work and also our, our role as allies in thinking about, you know, uh, uh, settler colonialism, where we live, ongoing violence, and um, uh, uh, anti-racism work within our multimodal paradigm. So there's a great article that um, was just published a couple days ago by the new uh, editors of the multimodal anthropology section in American Anthropologist 
um, uh, Arjun Shankar and um, Gabrielle uh, Datrian and Patricia Alvarez, who really, um, I think it's, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like uh, multimodal anthropology in shit times. I think that's the, the, the top, the title of the article, but it's about, you know, the challenge that we all have to, um, you know, take up our work as as allies and advocates and uh, to bring a sort of more engaged multimodal anthropology forward. Yeah, and alongside. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to say along <laughs> alongside that, we, you know, um, there's this other or and related impulse uh, of of working together, recognizing ourselves in the world um, as people in relationship to each other. Um, what are our responsibilities? Um, Kate and I are good friends and we've forged our collaboration on good relations with one another that are personal as much as they are a working relationship. And I think that um, feminist scholarship can teach us about, you know, that, um, importance of, you know, this world is relational. And so um, how do we honor those relations and how do we stand up in those? And so I think that, yeah, for us, it's been um, really important to actually highlight the fact that we are friends and, and, and how that makes the work particular and our, and our personal lives, our, our worlds are in the work. Um, as well. Yeah, so I would say certainly the the project um, for us has has been deeply personal, and I think it also, you know, if anything, you know, helps us think about our relationship to the to he, other humans and to the non human material world, but also really makes us think about what it is to be human and and the way that archives and museums are an extension of what we believe it is to be human, but how that's also part of a, a broader uh, power structure that we uh, both benefit benefit from and um, you know struggle to exist within. So I think. Um, it's been very generative personally, and I hope that we can continue to produce some works that help us think through that. Thank you so much, Jan. And I would like to really thank you for, I mean, we're com coming to the end of this, of this talk and um, thank you so much. The, the, the concept of the fugitive um, is, is really very, um, it's very dense and I was really seeing, I was very touched because yesterday I was doing field work in a collection in decay. Um, we're working on decaying collections and the collection, like decaying objects in general and the activity of the materials. And, and I had the idea that the concept of the fugitive kind of lets in the dark that actually the whole thing is going to, you know, is very active and is going to, to decay at some point. And, uh, and I was visiting a zoological collection, which is, it's even worse because it's not an archive. It's not even research collection. It's a collection that the students are supposed to touch and to, to learn, and they don't know how to do this anymore uh, because they are too digital, native probably. They, they destroy things with the microscopes, and there is no money to keep whatever, and they just fight to keep things. And, and the first things that disappear from all these uh, specimens 
is color. So all this shrimp, giant shrimp turning white and trying to escape, you know, and oh spirit escapes. And this is this is really it was very moving in a way, but it was also kind of a also they were kind of struggling to keep uh, alive a moment where man, <laughs> well, there was this there was a woman fighting also there, but was you know kind of holding nature in its um in its clouds and uh, and i believe that yeah it was kind of a very heartbreaking moment to see that the whole collection was kind of was escaping to dust basically so thank you so much because yeah it brought me really a lot of interesting thoughts and i don't know how much you're working on this activity of you know collection in, in general um but it would be super nice to follow up on that and uh we have we have a whole we are curating a whole exhibition uh, starting this summer in berlin and would be super nice natalia was also part of the project that would be super nice to to keep up with this dialogue and also we're looking forward to have you um in lisbon we still don't know what's going to happen there and we might want to to you know postpone it to a better time yeah <laughs> yeah it's looking increasingly like the um both funders and practically people not too much uncertainty about this September. So this is something that we will discuss collectively about what's best. We really want it to be physical at some time. It might not be this summer, but we'll see. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, things sometimes take time. And if I've learned anything in the pandemic is that maybe that's OK. <laughs> maybe it's OK to give some things some time. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, and that reminded me of of of, a, of another related issue around the archival and materiality. And as always, um, although you haven't, unfortunately, because of the time difference, we haven't been able to have you with us. But we always finish on the on the hour exactly, and we're always uh, leave. I think with a feeling that it could be even it could go on, and I think that's a nice feeling to leave with, actually. Um, so I just yeah. think we we have to say thank you. Um, thank you for giving us the time. Um, thank you for sharing your work with us. Um, I look forward to all of us finding some way to um, to yeah renew and and do work again in some in some form in some way together and to talk together properly without um who knows if it'll be possible without technologies and time constraints but either way it's a, it's, it's been great yeah, so thank you so speak, much everybody yeah. we need well, to speak Max. around the rizzo machine we need oh yeah there's the one in aberdeen in motion yeah it could be a rizzo machine ray, ray ray lucas will come to lisbon i think we <laughs> but maybe, but maybe if we have risograph machines in like five different places producing the same thing and seeing what happens, it would be quite cool. But that's another idea. Warhol had some early riso machine. Yeah, we should definitely do something with the risograph. Sounds cool. brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, inviting us and everyone for taking the time to come and be here today and. Um, yeah, I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. One day. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming. Thank you so much for attending. Bye. 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 <laughs>